0: All right, well, good morning. Uh, Let's pray together, and then we'll jump right in. Father, I thank you for this moment and all that it represents. Your people gathered around your word, needing, expecting your help. So we pray for more than space filler, Lord. You know the lessons plan for the children, how the teens are walking through the sermon text. And how this session is devoted to thinking about the doctrine of sanctification, growth in Christlikeness, but for all the prep and all the notes, we ask for your power, for your presence. We ask that you would meet and minister to every heart and that you would draw our eyes to Christ, help us to see him and to see uh, what it's like to walk in fellowship with him. Draw us to yourself, Lord. Not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, it is the second Sunday of April. That means we are looking at a historical theology snapshot of one of the doctrines in our Elder Affirmation of Faith. So we're walking through that series, and we are on week two. That is historical theology. Last week, we took a kind of rapid fire look at a at the biblical theology of this big doctrine, God's saving work in faith and sanctification. Last week biblical, this week historical, meaning what have Christians thought about this? Uh, The good news is we're not the first people to ever open a Bible. And we do ourselves a tremendous favor to stand on the shoulders of giants who've gone before us and to make sure to quote Jude that we are walking in consistency with the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. That we're not making it up, but that all of our brothers and sisters in church history would agree. So today's doctrine is this one, God's saving work in faith and sanctification. And for those who were here last week, you know it's the longest in our elder affirmation of faith. It has six points, one point has four points. So I think it's nine or 10 slides. Try to follow along as I read for us. We believe that justification and sanctification, let me get my cursor that I hope helps a little bit, there we go, justification and sanctification are both brought about by God through faith, but not in the same way. Justification is an act of God's imputing and reckoning, sanctification is an act of God's imparting and transforming. Thus the function of faith in regard to each is different. In regard to justification, faith is not the channel through which power or transformation flows to the soul of the believer, but rather is the occasion of God's forgiving, acquitting, and reckoning as righteous. But in regard to sanctification, faith is indeed the channel through which divine power and transformation flow to the soul, and the sanctifying work of God through faith does indeed touch the soul and change it into the likeness of Christ. We believe that the reason justifying faith necessarily sanctifies in this way is fourfold. First, justifying faith is a persevering, that is, continuing kind of faith. Even though we are justified at the first instant of saving faith, yet this faith justifies only because it is the kind of faith that will surely persevere. The extension of this faith into the future is, as it were, contained in the first seed of faith as the oak in the acorn. Thus, the moral effects of persevering faith may rightly be described as the effects of justifying faith. Second, we believe that justifying faith trusts in Christ, not only for the gift of imputed righteousness and the forgiveness of sins, but also for the fulfillment of all of his promises to us based on that reconciliation. Justifying faith magnifies the finished work of Christ's atonement by resting securely in all the promises of God obtained and guaranteed by that all-sufficient work. Third, we believe that justifying faith embraces Christ in all his roles, creator, sustainer, savior, teacher, guide, comforter, helper, friend, advocate, protector, and Lord. Justifying faith does not divide Christ accepting part of Him and rejecting the rest. All of Christ is embraced by justifying faith, even before we're fully aware of or fully understand all that He will be for us. As more of Christ is truly revealed to us in His Word, genuine faith recognizes Christ and embraces Him more fully. Fourth, we believe that this embracing of all that Christ is is not a mere intellectual assent. Or a mere decision of the will, but is also a heartfelt, spirit-given, yet imperfect, satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus. Therefore, the change of mind and heart that turns from the moral ugliness and danger of sin, sometimes called repentance, is included in the very nature of saving faith. And in point three. <clears throat> We believe that this persevering, future-oriented, Christ-embracing, heart-satisfying faith is life-transforming and therefore renders intelligible the teaching of the Scripture that final salvation in the age to come depends on the transformation of life and yet does not contradict justification by faith alone. The faith which alone justifies cannot remain alone, but works through love. Point four. We believe that this simple, powerful reality of justifying faith is God's gift, which he gives unconditionally in accord with God's electing love, so that no one can boast in himself, but, but only give all glory to God for every part of salvation. We believe that the Holy Spirit is the decisive agent in this life transformation, but that he is supplied to us and works holiness in us our daily faith in the son of god whose trustworthiness he loves to glorify two more point five we believe that the sanctification which comes by the spirit through faith is imperfect and incomplete in this life although slavery to sin is broken and sinful desires are progressively weakened by the power of a superior satisfaction in the glory of christ yet there remain remnants of corruption in every heart that give rise to irreconcilable war and call for vigilance in the lifelong fight of faith. Finally, we believe that all who are justified will win this fight. They will persevere in faith and never surrender to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself. Yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance so that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight, but it was not I but the grace of God which was with me. Well, that's a lot and I want to take a few minutes to talk about something that's tremendously important and the deeper you go in it, the more you'll realize, I trust, an appreciation for traditions that view things a little differently than you. And also a humility I pray and hope to realize whatever little branch of the tree of Christendom you're on, you got here because a lot of people who love and trust Jesus have diligently devoted their life and their mind, their heart to the Scriptures. So you may see things just a little differently, but uh, I think we owe a debt. Uh, to people who have wrestled deeply with the doctrines of Scripture that sometimes we don't, uh, we, we don't express our appreciation for. But with that said, I hope that you're, uh, to quote a famous pastor from yesteryear, get a conviction. Like don't just go through life nebulously with no convictions. Even though you may disagree Disagree conscientiously biblically humbly and respectfully with other brothers and sisters But get a conviction do the hard work To to drill down into scripture and find out as Luther said here. I stand I can do no other so help me God You have a dilemma. All right, we're gonna dig in now to some historical theology on sanctification this is not just yours, it is every Christian's, to quote the Latin, simul justice et peccator, simultaneously just and yet a sinner. You are justified if you are in Christ, and you are a sinner. And that will remain true. Hang on. Set my alarm for 944 AM. There we go. <laughs> Uh, This is true of you. This is your dilemma, your dilemma, (laughs) your dilemma to drill down a little further. Donald Alexander in his riddle of sanctification wrote a life of consistent holiness seems unattainable to many believers. Many are discouraged by sin's persistent power to enslave us. Sin often reigns over our lives like a sovereign dictator. We want to resist sin's commands." but the strength to do so frequently eludes us. So in his riddle of sanctification, Alexander gives this illustration. Ernie struggles with a habitual problem of lustful thoughts. He's prayed frequently that God would deliver him, but no release has come. Ernie believes that because God cannot look upon sin, God can no longer forgive him. He sincerely desires to live a life pleasing to God, but lacks the personal discipline to achieve his goal. What should Ernie do? Number one, should he reaffirm the belief that persons stand before God by faith alone, rest in this biblical fact, and simply seek professional help for his personal problem? Should he, number two, seek a special endowment of the Holy Spirit, which promises to cleanse the heart from impurity and fill it with divine love? Or should he, number three, recall that salvation means that the Holy Spirit has already given him the power to say no to sin and develop this power to resist by embracing God's law in obedient discipleship and expect a new response to the world, to himself, and to others to emerge? Well, your answer to Ernie's problem lets you know what you think about sanctification. How would you counsel him? How would you counsel yourself? And is there some overlap in how you might respond? Alexander goes on. The clear practical tension remains. Believers, on the one hand, do in fact sin. But on the other hand, they are admonished to stop sinning and to walk in holiness and perfection. That's what those texts tell us. So what do you do we're going to talk about the practical applications next week today i want to give you five different ways believers have mainly thought about how sanctification happens before i give you those five a great calvin quote from his institutes there never existed any work of a godly man which if examined by god's stern judgment Would not deserve condemnation think about that the best 10 seconds of your life the most holy prayer you've ever prayed the most sincere Bible study or congregational worship moment you've ever had has enough sin in it for God to justly condemn us forever that's what Calvin's talking about we have a damnable goodness we need to be saved from our righteousness not only from our wickedness. That's our dilemma. Romans, as you know, expresses this in a way that's confounded the best biblical scholarly minds. You know, when was Paul writing this and at what point of his juncture was he referring to? Well, just let the word wash over you. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. I find then the principle that evil is present in me. Let's see. Da-da-da-da-da. Here. Here picking up here, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Five perspectives, church history, rapid fire. I want to be clear that I regard that these are all coming from Bible-believing Christians who take sanctification seriously. Let's see. I have so many notes, I'm trying to decide on the fly what I'm going to read. I'm going to read this one. One author wrote it this way concerning these five perspectives. Sin rules with such strength that only the coming of Christ himself can abolish its final control. Hence, many believers conclude that the Christian life is a continual moral struggle in which consistent victory over sin will be experienced only in the life to come. On the other hand, Scripture commands us not to sin, not to let sin reign in our mortal body. But given the power of sin to enslave, this command appears to be both perplexing and unrealistic. Nevertheless, Scripture clearly presents us with the obligation to live lives worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4. The Apostle Peter is the one who admonishes believers But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter 1. The Apostle Paul urges believers to conduct themselves, quote, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, Philippians 1. And the author of Hebrews exhorts us to make, quote, every effort to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord, Hebrews 12. Surely these biblical commands must be taken literally and seriously. We are called to live lives of moral purity and spiritual integrity yet at the judgment seat of Christ there will be no saints but only sinners saved by grace how do we harmonize these biblical commands here are five efforts in church history the Wesleyan Lutheran Pentecostal contemplative or Keswick and reformed the Wesleyan view of course John Wesley being the premier sanctification begins at the moment of the new birth and Wesley would argue entire sanctification is the experience of being made perfect in love he believed that that was occasionally attainable on this side of glory John Wesley formulated 19 questions that would be asked of all prospective Methodist ministers in their ordination inquiry The most jolting, some would say, of the 19 questions is this one. Do you expect to be made perfect in love in this lifetime? And if a Methodist prospect minister could not say yes, he was disqualified. For Wesley, holiness was the process of becoming in reality what is already ours in Christ through regeneration, the new birth and summarizing this view uh, the author is lawrence wood said based on the testimony of christian experience as well as the scriptures wesley maintained the possibility of perfect love being realizable in this lifetime so entire sanctification was possible he wesley thought to say that it was not would be to diminish the redeeming work of christ second view Lutheran, obviously Martin Luther being the namesake. This is a summary of the view from Gerhard Ford, summarizing this view. He would say the sanctification is the art of getting used to the unconditional justification wrought by the grace of God for Jesus' sake. So sanctification is basically living in light of your justification, looking back. Ford went on to say sanctification is being salvation in the Lutheran view the new life rising from the catastrophe suffered by the old upon hearing that God alone saves he says it's the pure flower that blossoms in the desert watered by the unconditional grace of God so the more you think back on your justification then sanctification would necessarily happen Ford summarizes it this way Sanctification is simply the art of getting used to justification. It's not something added to justification. It's not the final defense against a justification too liberally granted. It is the justified life. That's what sanctification is. It is what happens when the old become... Sorry. It is what happens when the old being comes up against the end of itself. Let me back up. It is, sanctification is, what happens... When the old being comes up against the end of its self-justifying and self-gratifying ways, however pious, it is life lived in the anticipation of the resurrection. So the question for the Lutheran view of sanctification is can we get used to being justified? Can we quote, live as though it were true? That is the question. As Luther put it, to progress is always to begin again. In this life, we never quite get over grace. We never entirely grasp it. We never really learn it. It's always taking us by surprise again and again. We have to be conquered and captivated by its totality. The transition will never be completed on this side of the grave. The Christian can never presume to be on the glory road nor to reach a stage which now forms the basis for the next stage which can be left behind. The Christian who has grasped by the totality of grace, always discovers the miracle anew. It feels like being justified over and over and over again, is what Luther would say sanctification is. Grace is new every day, like the manna in the wilderness. It can never be bottled or stored. Yesterday's grace turns to poison. By the same token, however, the Christian never has an endless... The Christian never has an endless process of sanctification to traverse. Since the totality is already given at justification, one knows... That one has arrived Christ carries the Christian totally so it almost the Lutheran view almost undermines the contemporary view of sanctification more on that in a moment the Pentecostal view true religion for Pentecostals is a matter of personal experience they speak easily of an experience with God they are prone to judge the genuineness of a Christian of the Christian qualities of others their spirituality by whether or not there's evidence of personal spiritual experience. So the Pentecostal view of sanctification is very individual and very experiential. Uh, This author, Russell Splitter, describes it this way. Outsiders will think it strange that an extraordinary instance of the perceived presence of God might be reported this way by Pentecostals. God was so powerfully present that the pastor did not Give his sermon today might be a common expression in in Pentecostal circles. It's not that Pentecostals uh, do not value the Word of God. They rather give way on occasion to collective, extended oral praise and personal experience of God, even in the corporate setting. So common vernacular among Pentecostals, you may have heard some of these phrases, is to be slain in the Spirit, to be taken away by the Spirit, to receive a second blessing receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to receive a special gift, a personal prayer language, tongue speaking, word of knowledge, all those would be uh, kind of smuggled in to what true sanctification is in a Pentecostal view. Again, personal, experiential uh, meetings with God. The contemplative view, this one is also known as the Keswick. K-E-S-W-I-C-K, which is a series of conventions. Uh, These are your mystics that uh, um, are similar to our Pentecostal friends. Let me go back for just a second. Uh, If you've heard these names, Brother Lawrence, Julian of Norwich, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, they were prolific hymn writers, these mystics. Jesus, the very thought of thee. My Jesus, I love thee. Charles Wesley was very mystical in that hymn. Um, They've had a significant influence in Christendom. The contemplative view, according to Glenn Henson, these authors, by the way, are all people who hold the view that they're writing about. They're not writing against it, they're writing for it. Glenn Henson, on the contemplative view, said, contemplation has to do with this loving attentiveness to God. It is based on the premise that God is imminent, near, in the created order, particularly in the human order, that goes on to write is this not what the cross affirms our God has so fallen in love with us that he allows himself to be edged out on a cross with us and for us Uh, I think there's some inherent dangers in this view that uh, I'll risk saying before I read a few quotes from Henson one is it could um, unsuspectingly unwittingly make man the center of God's agape. Uh, If you've heard this phrase, in fact, there was a popular conference in Memphis the year Grace Church began and the out-of-town speaker had a radio bit. And in his bit, a little soundbite, God could not imagine heaven without you. Therefore, he sent Christ to die for you. Um, I think there's some big fault lines underneath that kind of terminology and way of putting it here's what Henson writes is this not what the cross affirms our God is so fallen in love with us the quote on the screen he was willing to be edged out on the cross with us and for us Bonhoeffer phrased it this way God is beyond in the midst of our life he shares our powerlessness hopelessness even to the point of dying our death the great 14th century social mystic Catherine of Siena discovered that quote the fiery abyss of charity needed her as much as she needed him god needed us as much as we needed him for he acted as if he could not live without us despite the fact that god is life itself the cross proves this how else could one explain it only in this way by recognizing that the mad lover god has fallen in love with what he has made the contemplative view of sanctification just realize more deeply how much god loves you Well, finally, and I saved this one for last, my alarm's about to go off, which tells me I have a few minutes remaining. The reformed view. This is my view. Reformed does not mean 16th century, and nobody thought it before that. Reformed means being shaped or formed, reformed by the Scriptures. Uh, Reformed is to be always reforming. The scripture is always changing. This would be the view I hold. There are two features central to sanctification in this view. Jesus himself is our sanctification, 1 Corinthians 1.30. And through union with him, sanctification happens or is accomplished in us. Sinclair Ferguson writes on this view. He writes, Scripture commands us, Ferguson, not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, But given the power of sin to enslave, this command appears both perplexing and unrealistic. Nevertheless, Scripture clearly presents us with the obligation to live lives worthy of our calling. I've mentioned some of these texts. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 1, Philippians 1, Hebrews 12. And Ferguson concludes this way. Um, Scripture Declares that the believer stands before God by grace through faith alone and not because of works No matter how good or moral these works may be at the judgment seat of Christ There will be no saints, but only sinners saved by grace hence the practical dilemma arises How do we harmonize God's sovereign work in conquering sin? Justification with our responsibility to live a life of consistent holiness sanctification Ferguson puts it this way Christ is our sanctification. That's 1 Corinthians one thirty. In him, it has first come to its fulfillment and consummation. He not only died for us to remove the penalty of our sin by taking it himself, he has lived, died, risen again, and been exalted in order to sanctify our human nature in himself for our sake. This is the significance of his words shortly before the cross. Sanctify them in the truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be sanctified. So John seventeen, nineteen, I sanctify myself that they may be sanctified is uh, where Ferguson gets this statement in addition to 1 Corinthians 1, Jesus is our sanctification, not just our justification. Two more slides. These are significant. Try to track along. The whole of Christ's life, death, resurrection, and exaltation have, by God's gracious design, provided the living deposit of His sanctified life, from which all our needs can be supplied. So Romans says, if you were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more shall we be saved by His life. So the life Christ lived, and the risen Christ The risen life Christ now has is what Romans says is the way we will be saved. We were reconciled through his death. We're saved, Romans 5.11, by his life. And somehow that life has to be imparted to us. How? Fellowship or union with him. That's how we come to share his resources. This is why he can become for us sanctification, just as he also is our wisdom, righteousness, and redemption. That's 1 Corinthians 1.30. God has made him to be dot, 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 our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Ferguson writes, In Christ incarnate, crucified, risen, and glorified humanity lies the sanctification I lack in myself. Last slide. This is huge. This is contra the Pentecostal view. And contra the contemplative view, if you can connect the dots. The fellowship of the church is the context in which sanctification matures, and in this sense is also a means for its development. For sanctification involves our attitudes and actions in relation to others. The love, which is the heart of, of imitation of Christ, 1 Corinthians 13, cannot be isolationist. The death of our inordinate love of self is tested, therefore, in fellowship. You can't be sanctified alone. You can't go be a monk in a monastery on a hillside in a mountain somewhere in the middle of nowhere and truly grow in Christ-like holiness. Jesus didn't even do that. And so it has to be fleshed out in community. Our love for God is made manifest in our love for others. 1 John 4. So if any of this piques any of your curiosity, the last book Clyde ever gave me was was this one uh, before he died. It's a tour de force on sanctification. Walter Marshall's The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification has stood the test of time for good reason. Maybe you've heard of this one, John Murray's Redemption Accomplished Justification and Applied Sanctification. Uh, this one would be well worth your 2022. If you've never read it, uh, you can listen to it on a number of different sources. I listened to it uh, instead of reading it. It was tremendous. J.C. Ryle's book on holiness is, I believe, a faithful presentation of the biblical doctrine of sanctification. It's the Reformed view, and it is fantastic. And then finally, you've probably heard of these. They're not door stoppers only. They are big. But John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, he wrote these, it's two parts. Knowledge of God and knowledge of yourself. That's what the institutes are. And it's written as a manual for new believers. So while it may look intimidating, he wrote it for baby Christians. But every quote I gave you today came out of this book. Christian spirituality, it's five views on sanctification. Well, If you've heard anything that is worth remembering I hope it's this line whether you hold share my view or not the reform view says Jesus is our sanctification and only in union with him in the context of a Christian community aka a church can you be biblically sanctified oh there's our summary I'm gonna take a risk for no no more than two minutes so that we have at least an eight-minute break any comment that someone would like to make? Yes, brother. I think it's uh, very important to uh, add that last part, like you did about the importance of the church and sanctification because I agree that it's not just a personal experience, but uh, I think it is also good to remember that as soon as you find that person you're gonna be married to, sanctification really is gonna get kicked off. And when you get some children around and the family is going to get even more kicked off. So, yeah, you know, church family too, but uh, also personal family. Yeah, well said. Yeah. We say marriage is a crucible for Christ likeness. So you want to become more like Christ? Uh, one sinner marry another sinner? Great opportunity.